We welcome you to Live from the Pullman National Monument, our global cast magazine format talk radio show, where we discuss all things cultural economic development, i.e. tourism, and we hold informative conversations on the arts, music, business, and people. I'm your host, Dr. Lynn Hughes, founder of the National A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum, a National Park Service site in Chicago, Illinois. Good day to you, my listening audience, and we thank you for joining us. Stay with us. Today's show is brought to you by the Pullman Messenger Magazine and Hughes-Peterson Publishing, partially underwritten by United Auto Workers, Local 551, and the Chicago Neighborhood Initiative. In the tradition of this program, live from the Pullman National Monument, we've established coming on explaining to you, the listening audience, about the Pullman National Monument. The Pullman National Monument is a thematic district. The themes for the National Pullman National Monument are labor and architectural history. Uh, the, the town is famous for its Queen Anne 18th century, 19th century uh, architecture. The town was built by George Pullman, who was the owner creator, founder of the Pullman Railcar Company. Mr. Pullman built the town for the people who worked for him, well, most of the people who worked for him. He built the town to provide housing for the people who worked in the factory. They were carpenters, cabinet makers, machinists, that kind of thing, and he wanted to build housing for them because he wanted to ensure that they had a place to live that was close to his factory in that he was a very astute businessman. And so providing housing for his employees that was steps from his factory meant that he could always count on his employees being at work and on time. But Mr. Pullman had two categories of employees. He had those uh, employees that I just named for you. And he also had African-American railroad employees who were the onboard crew for the Pullman Rail Car Company. They did not live in the Pullman Company because they were African-Americans and because of the racial climate and conditions of that time. They could not live in Pullman. So the people who worked as the onboard crew for the Pullman Company lived in a community in the city of Chicago known as Bronzeville. So the connection for African Americans to the Pullman National Monument is that they worked for the company that was located in the Pullman National Monument. But the recognition for the people who were working for the Pullman Company as the onboard crew. Most specifically, the ones that the claim to fame are the one that brought the most 
distinction and those who uh, created history with the Pullman Company were the Pullman Porters, who later became known as the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. They were the formulators of the first African-American labor union in the country. They were the first to win a collective bargaining agreement with a major U.S. corporation, which happened to be the Pullman Company. And so that is the significance for labor history. It is the black labor history connection for the Pullman National Monument. President Barack Obama designated the Pullman National Monument, the community of Pullman, as a Pullman National Monument in February of 2015. And so we are basically catching up, if you will. There were a number of entities. We were already here, already doing what we do, each of us in our own respective niches, before President Obama designated the area. Case in point, there is the Historic Pullman Foundation who operates a house tour, an annual house tour. Then there is the Pullman Factory, which is most famously referred to as the Pullman Clock Tower. That, that is the building that was the site of the Pullman factory where they actually made uh, the train cars, and it was the offices of the Pullman company. They are also uh, at 111th and Cottage Grove. That particular property is now owned by the state of Illinois and has been, I believe, for maybe 10 years uh, but that building is not open to the public on a daily basis. You Visitors may go to that factory and tour the building by appointment only. The Historic Pullman Foundation, which is at 112th and Cottage Grove, is currently shared with uh, or shared by the National Park Service and the Historic Pullman Foundation. The National Park Service is currently working uh, on building or building out their visitor center, which will become the official visitor center for the Pullman National Monument, and it will physic be physically located in the Pullman Clock Tower. But until they finish, they are currently sharing the space at the Pullman Visitor Center, which is which is at 112th and Cottage Grove. I'm not sure what the name is going to be once they finish because you won't be able to have two visitor centers, but, but that is where they are physically operating out of now. Then you have the Hotel Florence. It was the hotel that was uh, in place for people who came to visit Pullman. Uh, it is now under construction, and we are still not clear what that's going to be, uh, you can visit that as well by appointment only. Then there is the Greenstone Church. The Greenstone Church has a history. Uh, its significance is that is because of the bricks are green limestone that were that was distinctive at the time, and apparently it still is. That's number one. The second thing is because of the organ that is there, which apparently has um, major significance. And then, of course, there's the National A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum. 
of which I happen to have the honor of being the founder. It is a 22-year-old African-American labor history museum. And while it is small in size, the, the historic significance uh, has national acclaim in that it is the first African-American labor history in the U.S. It is the only one of its kind worldwide. The museum is open Thursday, Friday, and Saturday from 11 to 4, and the admission is $5. I make a point of saying that because all of the buildings that I named in this discussion are owned by the state or the federal government, and so they do not charge uh, an admission because they don't have to. We're not in that capacity yet. We do not have a written agreement with the federal government that would allow us to have a free admission, but we're working on it. We have one new restaurant. It's called the Pullman Cafe. It is at 113th and Champlain. So I hope that that provides you, the listening audience, with the kind of information that you need uh, for your visiting of the Pullman National Monument. Each of the entities that I make reference to has their own individual websites and you can follow them. But of course, you can visit the A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum uh, and the information that I have provided for you is displayed there on each entity under Pullman National Monument. So I hope that that provides you with information that you need that will help better help you understand what about what's going on with the Pullman National Monument. We are going to take a quick break and come right back with our first guest. Visit the PullmanBorderMuseum.com where you can purchase an annual membership at the level of your choice. And, of course, visit our website here to find out more about the show live from the Pullman National Monument at bbsradio.com forward slash live from PNM to contact us. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another show. We have Mr. David Whitaker, President and CEO of Chew Chicago. Good afternoon, Doctor. Jason Lesnevich, who is Neighborhood Tourism Manager for CHU Chicago. Good afternoon. And Mr. Al Orendorf, who is Director of Corporate Communications. Good afternoon, Doctor. It's good to be here. Oh, I'm welcome to you all. And I'm very excited about having the three of you here today. Um, of course, as you know, the focus of this show is tourism and that is all it is about. And so we always want to have, or we strive to have uh, interesting guests and conversations so that we can share with our listening audience all of the different layers that exist under the broader umbrella of tourism. We are embarking upon a new series of shows with Live from the Pullman National Monument where we will have a live guest in our studio who will be able to help us 
shall we say, uncover, explore in depth a little more about tourism as this show is an, a national and an international show, we want to begin to interact more with our international visitors. And so this show is twofold. It will be how to look at different ways to tap into the untapped a market of African-American tourists and the international tourists who we want to welcome uh, and invite to the city of Chicago. Chicago is a wonderful place. It has so much to offer. And despite all of the things that the media has to say, we think that Chicago is an absolutely amazing place to visit. And so people should not believe all of the hoopla that they hear and see on the news because we have so much to offer and we want to share that with visitors. And so the group that is with us today in studio, who better to talk about tourism than this group of gentlemen? We have Mr. David Whitaker, whose reputation precedes him as being a veteran uh, a tourist professional. And Jason Lesnevich is, you can't find any better person to talk about neighborhood tourism. What he's done for neighborhood tourism in the city of Chicago is absolutely amazing. And Mr. Orendorf yes, ma'am. is brand new to me, and so all I can say is he's a nice guy. <laughs> That's a good start. He'll grow on you, Doctor. He'll grow on you. <laughs> so why don't we start or begin with you folks just talking to the audience about telling them about you, Chicago, who you are, what you do, what kinds of things you plan to do and how you're helping us launch this new series of conversations about tourism. Well, Doctor, I'll jump in, obviously. First, thank you for giving us this opportunity. We're honored to be with you. Your reputation uh, precedes you as well. And, of course, being part of the Pullman National Monument, uh, we're so proud of that uh, national attraction. Uh, it's significant in its history with us and our storytelling of Chicago's past and future and present. So, again, thank you for giving us this opportunity. I also applaud you for this show, a chance to uh, share the Chicago story, both, again, the past, some of the traditions and histories, but also equally, if not more important, what's happening today and what can get visitors and potential visitors excited about learning more and ultimately traveling here. So, again, thank you for this opportunity. And I look forward to hopefully in the future being your guest many, many times as we go on that journey together. Clearly, you talk about visitors and every city uh, has that expectation. We are just ended a year, in fact, our calendar year, and our mayor proudly announced that we had exceeded, for the first time, over 54 million visitors. And we're thrilled with that. In fact, the mayor has a goal of, uh, he set that goal seven or eight years ago, of, of getting to 55 million. At the time, I think we were at 39 million. I was not part of the true Chicago family, but the mayor's vision has been in place for quite some time. We can do better in terms of attracting more international visitors. We welcome over 1.5 million international visitors, but again, many other cities that we are envious of, whether it's Miami or New York or San Francisco, you know, they're in the 6, 7 million visitor range, and we have an opportunity to do that. I think Chicago's story can be told in new places, and we invite your listeners to learn more about uh, Chicago that will be of interest to them. So again, thank you for giving us this opportunity. Clearly, visitors want to know what makes Chicago different? Why should we go there? 
we've been to New York, we've been to California, we've never been to the United States, whatever their position is, we need to give them compelling reasons to choose Chicago, no pun intended. Jason, in his role with us, um, managing and directing our cultural tourism initiatives, spends a lot of time. We have um, a wonderful program when visitors come here. And Jason, I'll encourage you to give that website because we're shamelessly pushing websites, but it's a visitors who come here can actually get guided tours into the neighborhoods. And we, it's a wonderful program. It's staffed by amazing volunteers who help give personal guided tours. And Jason, talk a little bit about that program. Yeah, that's the uh, Chicago Greeter Program, and it's a network of about 210 volunteers. And a visitor um, signs up ahead of time online, chicagogreeter.com. You go online, you fill out a form of what your interests are, and we always ask you about your neighborhood interests. Once that form is filled out, you're matched up with one of these volunteers from Chicago. They meet you downtown at the Cultural Center. They take you on public transportation, and they show you what they love about the city. And many of the greeters love the neighborhoods and all the various attributes that go into the neighborhood. So neighborhoods really get showcased um, through this program. And it's heavily geared towards internationals. About 54% of the participants are from um, international um, destinations. And um, because we're part of the Global Greeter Network, there's multiple services throughout the world, and Chicago is one of one of four in the U.S., so it really differentiates us that we have this great service that highlights our wonderful neighborhoods through the Chicago Greeter Program. That is a very interesting. Um, you just made me aware of something that I did not know, and that's significant for us because, oddly enough, we our, our international visitorship at the National A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum has grown. I want to say it might have been about a month ago, we had a bus of about 70 people who were who were Chinese visitors. And so they had an interpreter with them. Some spoke English, some did not. But we're always curious to to ask the question, why did you choose to come to our site? And what was interesting is that uh, our director has made, who he has established a practice that when we get international visitors, he always make this little video with the, the famous iPhones. So I want to say about maybe a couple of weeks later, one of the local newspapers was doing a story on the museum and the person that they sent to take the photographs happened to be Chinese. And so I was sharing with her the experience and so I wanted to so I said to her we have this video I would love to know what they said and so we played it for her and she said they said that they were so happy that they came they wanted to know more about uh, African-American the African-American experience they wanted to learn more about the late black labor history and civil rights so that was very interesting and informative to us. But what was most gratifying for me was that I had the opportunity to know what they were saying on the video. <laughs> you know, our our neighborhoods are attractive for so many of those reasons. You know, we have a wonderful downtown cultural district, if you will. But as you know, um, all throughout all the great neighborhoods of Chicago, there's great stories to tell. There's historic sites. There's great arts organizations. And so, you know, the possibilities with our neighborhoods are really endless in terms of visitation and, and what visitors have the opportunity to explore here.
you know, other areas where we have a proud history and, and known around the world, our brand around the world, is clearly music is another one of those examples, uh, whether that's jazz or blues. Um, and again, the history is there, and some of the amazing artists, Muddy Waters, Buddy Guy, Chance the Rapper, who just came home with seven Grammys, our own Chicago young man, so we're so proud of, of him. But that tradition of music, whether it be gospel, soul, blues, that's a very, very rich uh, territory for us to promote our reputation, our traditions, and then what's going on today. Um, so, you know, a perfect example of that is we just announced that the Rolling Stones exhibit, which was first in London, appropriately so, and then has been touring and is in New York City as we speak. Uh, we just had a press conference with the mayor and uh, in April, late April, uh, the Rolling Stones exhibit called Exhibitionism, a little evocative there, will be at our Navy Pier, our number one attraction here in Chicago, and we'll be here for several months. And it's interesting, the Rolling Stones, who all of our listeners, your listeners, know quite well, the name Rolling Stone was actually inspired by Muddy Waters, Chicago's on Muddy Waters. The name, the song was Rolling Stone on one of his, his uh, albums. And those young men at the time, Keith Richards and, and other Rolling Stone band members, um, Mick Jagger, of course, got so excited about blues. In fact, they just released a new blues tribute. But it's interesting, the Chicago name, Rolling Stone, was, in fact, the inspiration for the name of the band. And I think if you asked any of the members of the band, they would tell you that much of the origin of their music came from here, Chicago. To David's point about uh, uh, blues, uh, certainly jazz influences, um, we have an incredible music history here in Chicago, uh, and I think that has informed the arrangements and vocal stylings of uh, of uh, bands, rock bands, and and uh, and other music artists from all over the world. Uh, and I think that's well known. Um, going back into the into the twenties, uh, everybody knows who Louis Armstrong is, uh, and he is mostly associated with New Orleans. But the reality is that when he came to Chicago in 1923, here is where he cut his teeth. Before he began uh, recording with uh, King Oliver and and started really making a name for himself, he began his process towards superstardom here. Uh, and I, those that kind of history, I think, is very rich and uh, is a story that I think deserves to be told and retold. And music, of course, remains prevalent today. In fact, we have a number of music events, the festivals that we enjoy over the summer. In fact, uh, we have two major festivals centered around blues and jazz and soul. Jason, I again defer to my resident expert. Of course. You know, the festival season kicks off, as you probably know, with Gospel Fest, a celebration of a, a modern art form that really started here with uh, Thomas Dorsey and uh, Mahalia Jackson, of course, two great names in the gospel uh, music industry as pioneers um, here um, right next door in the Bronzeville neighborhood, running right into Blues Fest. And, you know, Mark Kelly, the new commissioner of D-Case, is really excited about new um, new lenses on all of his festivals. And he's really bringing in Rhyme Fest is going to be part of Blues Fest, and he's going to have a new modern twist to it, not just the classic art form, but how blues really led to rock and roll and beyond. And, you know, so Chicago, I, you can't speak enough about our music legacy and even from our house music leading to electronic dance music and what's going on currently in Chicago's music scene with Chance and his peers are absolutely amazing 
And so um, there's such a great music product currently that you can experience here in the city. And then, of course, after um, blues, you get into taste. And then, you know, it really ends with a wonderful series of jazz fests from the downtown wonderful jazz fest um, downtown in our parks and Millennium Park to the Hyde Park Jazz Fest, a wonderful, wonderful festival. And I believe Englewood has a jazz festival, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And shameless promoters that we are. All of these festivals can be found on our calendar of events. Shameless plug for our calendar of events at uh, www.choosechicago.com. Thank you for this platform, a chance to invite visitors to learn more about Chicago and, and compelling reasons why, whether they're celebrating their own heritage and history, whether they're, they're looking to learn more and more about other uh, aspects of history and culture, but also just to have an amazing vacation experience. It was indeed a pleasure to host your gentleman today. I hope you'll have us back. I intend to ask. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that you will come again often. The goal of this show is to talk about tourism, destinations and opportunities, and have enlightening conversations about tourism worldwide. And I applaud you for the work that you do. I thank you for joining us today. And I treasure this opportunity and hope that you will come again. Thank you, Doctor. And again, thank you for your time today. It's been our pleasure. I appreciate it. You're most welcome. Come see us in Chicago, everyone. afternoon and welcome to another edition of Around the Museum Table. I'm your host, Dr. Lynn Hughes, and we are excited about our guest today. Our guest today is Dr. Maria Madison. She is founder of Robin's House, a Concord, Massachusetts historic site that celebrates and interprets African and American history. Dr. Madison, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be on the show. So tell us a little bit about yourself and about Robin's House. and Tell us some of the wonderful work that has been occurring there, all because of you and the wonderful people that you've managed to rally together, which is a miracle. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. It does feel like a miracle. Absolutely. I um, must have moved to Concord, Massachusetts about 18 years ago. We moved here with uh, our two-year-old son and, um, and then subsequently had another daughter. And uh, as soon as you move anywhere, you move with a sense of awe to the new place and curiosity. And with that awe and curiosity, we were also interested in learning what our kids would learn about black history in a community that... Uh, has a lot going on in a lot of ways in terms of history and writers and just activism. But we also wanted to know what was going on in the community related to African-American history, what the kids would be learning in school related to black history, 
And uh, because of that curiosity, some people in the school gave us a book called Concord is Black History. It was published by the Concord Public Schools in 1976. They used it in the school system for 10 years till 1986. And then they stopped using the book. Uh, so you can imagine when we moved to town, we were really excited to try and rediscover the places that that book had highlighted. It highlighted places like the middle school was named after a fellow named Frank Sanborn. He was one of the Secret Six who helped uh, fund John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. Uh, the elementary school was named after Louise May Alcott. Her family was an active uh, group of abolitionists. And there's so many other places in town named after early African residents, and we wanted to know who they were. So we actually started uh, taking kids, our own kids, as well as children who were bused from Boston urban schools to Concord to go to the suburban schools for the hope of a better education. So we started taking those kids and our kids around to these spots that commemorated some of these early African residents in particular and what they had done to help create this historic town. In the process of giving tours, which we gave probably for a good three to five years, we discovered and the town discovered a house that was coming up for demolition in 1990. Oh, I've lost track. 19, I've lost track, let's say like 2009, actually. <laughs> the house was coming up for demolition because the last inhabitant had died. And there was a sign on the house that said, Peter Hutchinson, circa 1780. And the town knew and we knew that that was one of the... Um, well-known 19th century black residents uh, who one of the uh, more well-known Concord residents had written about. And that individual, of course, was Henry David Thoreau. Lots of people come to Concord to hear more about who Henry David Thoreau was as an environmentalist, as a transcendentalist, as a writer. Uh, but we had learned that he also wrote down stories of what he heard and saw about the early African residents including people who had lived in this house that was coming up for demolition. So we quickly swept into action. We stopped being just community activists and organizers and had to become a nonprofit. We, many of us, also had day jobs, so we had to somehow convert our uh, day jobs, which were completely unrelated to the stories of history and African-American history in particular. And we had to incorporate ourselves and, and try to acquire, restore, preserve, and adapt this house that everyone believed was built in the 1780s by or for this African uh, family. Long story short, uh, the town helped us to restore and uh, restore, preserve, and adapt the house. They also helped us to move it closer to its original location where it was uh, located across the street from what is called the North Bridge, which happens to be where the first successful battle was fought during the Revolutionary War. So this historic house now sits in a corner of the world, and in Concord in particular, where millions of people come to visit because they want to understand how America was founded or how America gained its independence from King George. So that we benefit from that. We have uh, been open since about 2011 or 12. 
and we've probably had 30 to 40,000 conversations with global visitors about that parallel narrative uh, related to the Revolutionary War. People come to learn about how America was founded and gained independence from King George in England, but we end up describing to them that there was another pathway that had to be forged by those earliest of African uh, migrants, if you will. We end up needing to describe to our thousands of visitors that there was slavery in the North, that the slavery in the North was equally egregious as slavery in the South. It may not have been as um, populated. Uh, it may not have been based on the same kind of agrarian um, needs, but the disenfranchisement, uh, the treatment of the enslaved in the North was as problematic as it was in the South. We then go on to describe for our visitors that, yes, uh, Massachusetts was the first state to legalize slavery. Uh, it also became one of the first states to abolish slavery. But we then learned quickly that we had to explain to our thousands of annual visitors, I think we get 7,700 visitors each year, that even though slavery was abolished, uh, individuals had no means to provide for themselves or their families, and we had to describe then uh, that era that uh, is referred to as the Reconstruction Era. So we tell our visitors um, the origins of African inhabitancy in this country as represented not just through Concord, but through the people who lived in this house. So our, our narrative for this house is that it commemorates the legacy of a previously enslaved Revolutionary War veteran, the uh, individual that we know of as associated with the farmhouses on that property. His name was Caesar Robbins, and he was enslaved in the North. He was also a Revolutionary War veteran who had fought, fought in at least two or three battles. Uh, and the house was inhabited by, one could say, three to four generations of his descendants. And it's a 544-square-foot house, which is very typical of farmers for that period, white or black. So one could say that even though it's small, it is similar to how any farmer of that era would have lived. So one could say that this earliest of African families was doing well by comparison of other Africans living in Concord or in the North at that time. Some of those earliest of African inhabitants were pushed to even less arable land, uh, dying, for example, from malnutrition, et cetera. But this family, this family is interesting because Caesar's son, Peter, was able to find his pathway to independence and buy the house uh, just through odd-end jobs and being a day laborer, if you will. Um, his sister, Susan Garrison, she actually helped to found the Concord Female Anti-Slavery Society, even though her husband had been a fugitive slave from New Jersey. So he had fled from New Jersey to Concord and ended up staying in Concord. A lot of what we've done in this house is to uh, begin to interpret the lives of these individuals, and one individual in particular is Ellen Garrison. Ellen was Caesar Robbins' granddaughter, she was Susan and Jack's daughter. She was born and raised in this house. 
She was born in 1823 and lived in Concord till 1840. We've interpreted her life in an exhibit in-house because her life really is a parallel and a wonderful vehicle for describing America's long civil rights movement. I say that because she's born in Concord, which is this you know, town that sees itself as really representing um, the stronghold of abolitionist ideas as well as transcendentalist ideas. She's born in Concord at a time where many of the whites of the town are discussing um, slavery. They're discussing anti-slavery and abolitionism. They're also discussing how far do we want these blacks to go? Do we want them to be equal to us? Or do we just want to end the genocide that is slavery? So she's growing up in that kind of Concord. And with that grounding, she becomes a top scholar in Concord. She wins the highest prize for scholarship while she's a student in Concord. And with that uh, fervor, you could say, she moved to Boston and became a part of the more active black community in Beacon Hill, um, very active Boston Vigilance Committee. She starts hosting events on behalf of other nationally renowned abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison. And to fast forward to the 1860s, when she's in her 40s, she um, actually signs up to be a teacher within the Freedmen's Bureau, which is, of course, created during the Reconstruction era to help teach the newly freed, enslaved uh, people of the South in particular to learn how to read and write. It's through this that we now get to start interpreting the lives of these earliest Africans through the voice of Ellen Garrison, this young African-American girl who's now a woman teaching during the Reconstruction era. She starts writing 100 letters. It's through her letters that we have been able to get a glimpse into what it's like to have been born in Concord, to travel south to Portugal, Maryland, and start experiencing racism in a way that she may not have experienced necessarily in Concord, but she writes eloquently about in her experience in Maryland. During that period, she actually, by May of 1866, decides uh, or actually is forced to have to replace some clothing because her house was burned down. Many Southerners didn't like those Northern teachers coming down to teach their newly freed enslaved brethren. Uh, And so they burned her house, and she needed to replace her clothing. So she went to the train station in May of 1866 in order to go and travel to buy items that she needed to replace. But being this well-educated, strong woman, young woman, she writes a letter about how she decided to sit in the ladies' waiting room at the Baltimore Railroad Station, and she's sitting just with all the other people who were there. It just so happens she was the only black woman sitting there. And so on two occasions, two people came up to her and told her she needed to leave. On the second occasion, it was actually the train station master who was impersonating a policeman, and he forcibly ejected her. And she writes in one of her letters that she was emotionally and physically abused or harassed by his gesture. And she writes beautifully to her supervisor that... Now that our friends in Congress one month ago had passed a law to help us respect our rights, she felt it was within her rights and duty 
to test those rights. Of course, what she was referring to was that the country had just passed, in April of 1866, the nation's first Civil Rights Act. So she was testing it one month later with what I like to refer to as the nation's first documented sit-in. So she represents the nation's first sit-in as well as the first legal test to the first Civil Rights Act, which was in 1866, which, of course, as you know, is many decades before Claudette Colvin or Rosa Parks. So what we see is that, or what we found actually through our own efforts uh, last summer, was that her court case was thrown out. We don't have evidence yet on why it was thrown out. Next to the, um, the docket, there are initials or little letters next to her name that said N-E, and the Maryland, uh, a Maryland, Maryland legal assistant said the N-E might mean non est, for she wasn't present when the case was called. However, in one of her letters, it does say that she was waiting for the case to be called, but that the case was never called. One of her letters also says that the uh, lawyers for the train station master tried to settle with her out of court, but just like Thoreau, she said, no, I want to see if rights of respectable, respectable people can be respected. So just like Thoreau, she didn't want an easy uh, resolution. It reminds me of Thoreau because, of course, he wrote Civil Disobedience, not paying his poll tax in protest of slavery. But when his aunt came to release him, he didn't want to leave the jail. He wanted to make his point. And Ellen Garrison in the same way. She didn't want to settle her court case. She wanted to make her point. Um, but unfortunately, the court case was thrown out, which is an example equally of the Reconstruction era being defunded. And of course, many scholars have tried to find the best way to describe why it was defunded. Some like to say that the Reconstruction era and the Freedmen's Bureau was defunded because it, of course, was too successful. It was a test of helping African Americans gain a stronghold in government. It was the first time you would see congresspersons of color in Congress. It was the first time you would see an effort to distribute land equally to people who previously, previously hadn't been allowed to own property. Instead, they were property treating, treated as animals or inhumanely. And I think as a backlash to that redistribution, many white Southerners, for example, felt that land was being taken from them, that their rights to uh, wages and uh, jobs were taken from them. So during that same period, of course, you see the rise of the KKK and Jim Crow laws and black coats, et cetera. So with the deconstruction and defunding of the Reconstruction era, we follow Ellen Garrison through to another movement called the Exodusters. She traveled to Kansas for the promise of owning arable land, met a man, married him, owned probably around 160 acres or so. And um, what we see, of course, is the Exoduster movement is so-called because the land is not arable. It's almost like dust. And uh, we, interestingly enough, see her moving again, this time with her sister and uh, her husband, Hervey Clark, to what we just recently discovered last month, Pasadena, California, mm. to a cemetery where we find her buried 
uh, in, I think it's called Mount View Crest or Mount Crest View Cemetery in, uh, in outside of Pasadena. And she is buried in a cemetery that was created by John Brown's family. And I spoke with someone at that cemetery whose name was Keith Brown. And Keith Brown said that that cemetery was created for the East Coast friends and family of John Brown. So we have now found this exceptional connection from the Northeast to the Southwest of this migration that I think represents, you know, that search for the warmth of other suns, um, of our people constantly moving, looking for tranquility, peace, and just a right to create transgenerational health and wealth. Uh, that's that's where our story is at present. That's my what very long description. <laughs> no, no, that's an absolutely fascinating uh, history and with so much detail. And then that kind of detail only comes when the researcher uh, is dedicated to mm-hmm. excavating truth uh, right. at the, the at the end of the 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 line. Where where does where's the genesis of that? That takes a, an, an enormous amount of determination, and and mm-hmm. I just applaud you uh, and the work that you have done and continue to do because this is this is a very it's not unusual but it's the kind of thing that happens on an ongoing basis where you have this bit of history that most of us do not know mm-hmm. uh, because they don't teach it mm-hmm. uh, in the schools and our children don't know it and and mm-hmm. more often than not the adults we uh, mm-hmm. don't know that the, the historical account but it is significant and it's one of those scenarios where the explanation is applicable here if you if you don't know who you are and where you came from and that your history matters you think very little of yourself which is in my opinion uh, and, and and many may not agree but but I truly believe that many of the problems that we have in the African-American community with our youth uh, Mm. emanate from the feeling of no value. And and if you don't value yourself, then it guides your actions and your behavior. And I don't know why people don't get that, but but that is so, so true. And so whenever I hear of work like what you're doing, uh, it's Thank a very you. emotional experience for me because I'm very passionate about what I do, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. why I made the lateral move to create this show. I, too, mm-hmm. like you, founded uh, a, a, a black labor history museum. And mm-hmm. I, I, like you, did not move to Chicago with the intent of starting a museum. It was a byproduct much like what you did. I moved to Chicago looking for a place to reinvent myself. I didn't I wanted to go somewhere where I didn't know anyone. I ended up in Chicago and literally stumbled upon 
the mm. history the history of A. Philip Randolph and the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, and as they say, the rest is history. And that was 23 years ago. And so the work that I have done through the museum has been the motivating factor for numerous books and documentaries mm. and docudramas and while I did not get credit or paid for that, that is not the, that that is not what's important. What is important is the history has That's been right. excavated in a way that now people are paying attention. And I think the best thing that could have happened for me was mm. that show Showtime's interest in creating a docudrama that reached the younger demographic, which is what this is all about. That's exactly right. We, so, um, so, we so it's wonderful. Try. Thank you. We, we definitely try to do that. And in fact, what, what we try to tie in is this concept of here's a family that fought hard to overcome adversity and that we don't want to just explain to people that there was slavery, but we want to explain that these are people who, as my father described in a letter to my brother, uh, we are the survivors of that ingenuity, and that there's a kind of genius that had to still come out from that period and the ongoing struggle, and that that genius is what makes American culture, the examples of which, the examples least of which, are the American culture that's exported around the world. Wherever I go, I see examples of the inventions of people who created things right after being enslaved or even during slavery, the examples of which are the vanilla beans by an enslaved person, the potato chips by an African-American who may have had indigenous or German blood, the almanac by Benjamin Banneker, the light bulb, the elevator, the pen, the refrigerator, the ironing board, open-heart surgery, dustpan, lawnmower. Those were all 19th century when we're still, you know, not long after slavery across the country, you know, and describing that parallel to the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, all the civil rights acts, these inventions are what makes Americans Americans. So when I hear, for example, you know, uh, some folks who are really don't understand African-American contributions to America and say things like, they need us, we don't need them. I feel sad for them because they just don't know the contributions <laughs> of African-Americans to this country or to the world. It is just, it's mind-boggling. And yeah. it's almost, it's almost, but that, 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 that just demonstrates that we have more work to do and the importance or it raises the, the recognition that there's more work to do and the importance of our passing on this knowledge to the younger demographic because we probably won't finish um, the work that we have started. And and so it's significant because they have to know it. That's right. They have to know it because experiencing and learning about these important uh, uh, actions or occurrences in our history, it not it's not just a, a place to visit. Like if someone visits your place or visits the the other uh, places of significance that that interpret and celebrate African American history. But, right. but they leave with an understanding and a recognition 
of the importance of it, but it also makes them a better citizen, I believe. That's right. That's it. That's exactly it. I, I will say that we have been exceptionally fortunate to have won a couple of grants from the Institutes of Museum and Library Services that our most recent one is helping us to create curriculum for the public schools in our area. So the curriculum is being developed for elementary, middle, and high school. And in addition, we have also been fortunate to have uh, participated in training, a variety of training focused on Africa, interpreting African-American history and culture. And one of those uh, trainings is available through the National Museum of African-American History and Culture with the Smithsonian. And they solicit 12 to 14 representatives of sites across the country to submit proposals and applications to participate each January in their annual workshops that they host in South Carolina. So I I would strongly recommend uh, individuals who are interested in interpreting historic sites like these to reach out to IMLS or reach out to the Smithsonian or reach out to NMAAHC. Well, that's good to know. That's good to know. Uh, We at the uh, Pullman Porter Museum, I'll just shorten it and say, and we've not had very good luck with with that kind of thing. So maybe okay. something that you just shared will <laughs> will rub yeah. off on us. Um, I have the passion and the tenacity to do to create the museum, but mm-hmm. I'm not very good at, uh, which is now why I'm no longer president. Which is, you know, why the demographic, the younger demographic, is important because they, they, the millennials kind of see things through a different lens, which is mm-hmm. always helpful because pioneers sometimes right. we get a block. <laughs> right, right, right. I get a block. I, I, I get a block regularly. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. But yes. the students. When we bring school groups into the house, that's where the magic happens. So the last two, uh, we had a, our last two programs were with the Harlem Lacrosse uh, program. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but I think I'm it's, not. A, it's, I think, a national nonprofit. But each year, uh, that group brings uh, Harlem Lacrosse players to various places across the country, including Concord. And they play a tournament, uh, a lacrosse tournament, that combines local lacrosse players with the Harlem lacrosse players. They also mentor these kids. They, I think, mentor them through internships and potential career paths and through school. Uh, But they also take them to the historic sites throughout the area. So when those programs come, that's one of the most magical moments of you know, this work, it re-energizes you when you know you're making a direct contact on this history. That is fascinating. I I, I want to, um, do you have time to stay with us just a few more minutes? Oh, yes, sure. We're going to take a quick break and come okay. back. Okay. Let's go to break. Visit the PullmanBorderMuseum.com where you can purchase an annual membership at the level of your choice. 
And, of course, visit our website here to find out more about the show live from the Pullman National Monument at bbsradio.com forward slash live from PNM to contact us. Well, we're back, and this has been an absolutely fascinating uh, interview. And Dr. Madison, I hope that we can impose upon you and ask you to come back um, to visit with us again. This is wonderful, and I think we didn't need, we just this was just the tip of the iceberg. I think that you have so much to share uh, that our listening audience would love to hear and could benefit from the information and the knowledge that you have about the work that you're doing, because it, it's an overlay. It, it transcends mm-hmm. not just where you are, but mm-hmm. uh, the other sites as well. Let's give mm-hmm. your website uh, and contact information before we run out of time. Absolutely. Thank you. And, and, and I do want to say a special warm thank you to you as well for, for connecting us and and uh, having us on this show, uh, <clears throat> please visit us at www.robinshouse.org, and our contact information is uh, available there as well. Thank you once again, Dr. Hughes. You are so very welcome, and um, I can't thank you enough, and we look forward to uh, your visiting us again. So, um, thank, you. thank you. And in Chicago. <laughs> good, good. So, everyone, thank you. Join me in thanking Dr. Maria Madison, founder of Robin's House in Concord, Massachusetts. Thank you. Everybody, thank you for sharing with us another informative show on the ever-expanding topic of tourism. Thank you to the listening audience for spending part of your Sunday with us. And a very special thank you to the Pullman Messenger Magazine, United Auto Workers Local 551, and Chew Chicago. Thank you to our fantastic engineer, Mr. Don Newsom, smooth jazz artist Jonathan Fritzen for allowing us to use his music on our show every week. And last but not least, you, the listening audience, because without you, there would be no show. And we'll see you next time on Live from the Pullman National Monument. Live from Pullman National Monument was brought to you by Hughes Peterson Publishing in Chicago, Illinois. Hosted by Dr. Lynn Hughes.